0: Coming to you from the great Pacific Northwest in the shadow of Mount St. Helens near the shores of the mighty Columbia River. This is Blood and Popcorn. My name is Eric. Thank you for tuning in or clicking or whatever we're calling it now. Um, got some great dark roast coffee in here. I got to take it. Hang on, I got to take a sip of this. It's really good. So I uh, I haven't been to Costco in 20 years and I went last weekend. I renew my membership um, after two years of pretty much lockdown and avoiding people, I was not ready for that. Oh my god, that was that was just terrifying. It was so many people in such a confined space. I it was that was probably not a good choice for that to be my first really going out in massive public. You know, other than just like running to my local store pretty quick, I was not prepared for Costco. But I did find this Nicaraguan dark roast coffee that's actually really really good. So I obviously have to keep going back. Uh, Because once you find a coffee that's your go-to coffee, you just, you got to support it. You got to, you got to keep getting it. Um, It's like, it's like finding your bourbon. Once you find your favorite bourbon, you know, you just, it's your go-to. You got to have it around. Hey, I also want to give a huge thanks to those of you who listened to the erotic thrillers episode. That is officially my number two ranked episode, which makes me quite happy because that is one of my favorite genres. I can talk erotic thrillers and giallos like all week and still have enough material left over for our following week. Um, So I'm really glad a lot of you checked that out. Um, And since you're probably now asking what my number one episode is, that would be the Silent Night, Deadly Night, Christmas Evil um, episode in December, where I talk about Silent Night, Deadly Night is actually um, a thesis on this failure of systems and how Christmas Evil is actually about arrested development So, and how they're both really relevant uh, today. So yes, and so my number three episode is the uh, Halloween um, Horror Hosts that I did in October, uh, which was also one of my favorite episodes that I did. Um, really f- diving into that subject and finding out that there were two horror hosts here important that I had no knowledge of. Um, it was really great diving into that history, and I'm glad a lot of you would check that one out as well. But today, we're going to talk about Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2022. This movie turned out to be so controversial. Um It kind of of caught me by surprise, and so I gave myself some time to think about it, and I also wanted to let that die down before doing a pod on it, give enough time for people who wanted to see it, and of course, let some of the emotion subside. Um, It really caught me by surprise, and so I watched the film a couple times to try and figure out why, and I I think I figured it out. That's why I'm do- doing this episode. So if you still haven't seen it, this episode will not be spoiler free. OK, so if you still have plans to do so, you should hit the eject button now, Goose. Eject, 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 eject. Also, this episode is going to go down some alleys which may come close to the flames of controversy. So if you're someone who uses words like fair to describe what you think life should be like, this may not be the episode for you. Though I would encourage you to hang around, but I wanted to give you that heads up that this episode may challenge your worldview just a tad or reveal some truths, which is why I think some people have such a visceral reaction to the film. Also, if you're one of these people who talk about not wanting political or social themes in your entertainment, this may not be the episode for you either. (laughs) Although, again, I encourage you to stick around because I get what you're saying. But I think you're under the impression this is a new phenomenon, which it really is not. It definitely was handled more deftly in the past, more effectively nuanced, but it has always been there. It was just done better by far more talented filmmakers than is being done now. So if you're offended at some point during this episode... After this warning, that's on you, because that's not my intent. My aim here is to look at this film through an objective prism and appreciation for its execution on what are kind of touchy subjects. OK, so I like to have honest conversations here what we used to call courageous conversations when I was on a, uh, a school committee. OK, so here we go. Texas Teensaw 2022. I thought the trailers for this film were absolutely terrible. And I went into it expecting to hate it. And to my surprise, I really liked it. I mean, it's not perfect by any means. Few films are. But it's a good horror film and an interesting sequel boot or whatever the hell this new genre is. And I'll be 100% honest in that other than the trailers uh, looking terrible, another reason I expected to hate it is because I have been working on pitching a sequel which would have caught back up a stretch, the character played by Carolyn Williams in Texas Chainsaw 2 some 30 years later, having picked up Lefty's Torch, the character played by Dennis Hopper, and still trying to chase down the Sawyer family. And I had this concept long before Halloween 2018, by the way. Okay, So it's, that's how long I have been working on crafting that that idea. But that's what this business is. It's all about timing. It's all about getting to the right people and trying to untangle who those people are, given the rights to a lot of these films have been sold and resold more than the stocks and options for GameStop or AMC. So again, I went into this film practically wanting to hate it, and that just didn't happen. So to recap what the plot is here... um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2022 positions itself as a direct sequel to the original, and like Halloween 2018, tosses aside any and all sequels which came after the original, which of course bothers me because I think Texas Chainsaw 2 is a fantastic film. In fact, I watch that film more often than I do the original. To this day, the original still unsettles me because it hits a little too close to home, having grown up in rural Southern Oregon. There were people like the Sawyer family everywhere in Southern Oregon at that time, probably even more now, honestly. So, and you just knew there was something going on with those people that you wanted absolutely nothing to do with. Texas Chainsaw 2 departs from that documentary style, so it feels more like a work of fiction as opposed to peeking in on the neighbors that I try to try to avoid. And also the soundtrack, which I recently just got that vinyl release from Waxworks, is absolutely banging. So Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, from um, its differentiating style from the original to its color palette, the cinematography and the music, I love it just top to bottom. One of my favorite horror films of all time. In this rebootquel, Sally Hardesty, the only survivor from the original, went on to become a Texas Ranger and has spent the last 40 years trying to chase down the Sawyers and put an end to their reign of terror. She's pushing 70 in 2022 and is now retired to her pig farm. But she comes off more of a side character here, unlike uh, Laurie Strode in Halloween 2018. Because she's, um, you know, she yields the floor here to a gang of millennials who have come to rural Texas from Austin to scoop up property at rock bottom valuations, and was essentially become a ghost town. Whatever industry was there has moved on, leaving the town destitute and ripe for profit. The main character which emerges is a teenager named Lila, who we find out is the survivor of a school shooting. She's already seen the worst the world has to offer, and thus is the only one mentally equipped to step up and challenge Leatherface. This also gives her something in common with Sally Hardesty when she shows up, both having been survivors of horrific events which took the lives of their friends. The best laid plans of the characters to turn this decaying town around go wrong when they move to evict an old woman from her home, played by the always fabulous Alice Kriege. Turns out her home also served as an orphanage back in the day, and she still has one adult male living with her because of his special needs. Furthermore, she claims she's not in default on her home loan, and that it was a bank error, and she did in fact pay off the loan and owns the title. No one believes her, and she and the adult male who still lives with her are both physically evicted. The event causes her to go into a seizure and die, thus enraging her male counterpart, who turns out to be, yes, you guessed it, Leatherface. Thus, terror ensues. And we're not going to talk about the timeline, <laughs> about whether Leatherface would have been a kid there, and it's and it's not in, it's not entirely made clear if Alice Creech is actually being honest about you know where he came from and if he had been there, um, you know since he was a teenager. So we won't get into that. We're not going to you know dissect it too much. But there's a lot to unpack here, and I wanted to break it down to sort of the way I absorbed it. So this film was put together by Fidi Alvarez, who was behind the Evil Dead remake and Don't Breathe. The screenplay was written by Chris Thomas Devlin, and this looks to be his first feature film credit. But Alvarez has a story by credit here, so it's going to be hard to determine who was responsible for what concepts and themes that make up the story. But I have to say I really like how this came together. First, the setup of this diverse, obviously leftist center group coming from Austin to set up this utopian hipster center of commerce and community in a dying rural Texas town was a very unique and tactful way of taking a look at the topic of gentrification, which for the uninitiated is the process of changing the character of a lower income neighborhood or area by an influx of a higher income population entering the market. It's how your local grocery store that's been there for generations eventually gets replaced by a Whole Foods, okay? Now, the way these characters are portrayed, they would be the type of people who would be against this sort of thing. But of course, the frame they would be thinking about it through would be urban gentrification, inner cities. So when they see this great opportunity in rural Texas, they're oblivious to the fact they're doing the same thing that they would be against they're just seeing this fantastic financial opportunity while at the same time creating something which falls within their values so they're unintentionally blind to what they're doing which makes the scene where melody and dante have to come face to face with the collateral damage of their actions telling uh, mrs mc alice Crege, she has to get the hell out of her home which they believe they now own absolutely fantastic There's this moment where Melody, uh, who's played by Sarah Yarkin, realizes, wait, are we the bad guys? What are we doing here? Holy crap, we are the bad guys. And Dante's reaction is to just walk away, ignore it, and do what? Call the cops. All of this is so perfect in our contemporary landscape. Especially for my generations, whose parents were the 60s generation, the boomers, who at some point gave up fighting the system and decided to buy in because that happens a lot. A good percentage of every generation's fist-waving activists eventually get to the point where they buy into the very system they've been rebelling against, and they never realize that's what they're doing because they believe they're doing it differently, because they continue to care about whatever issues matter to them while taking advantage of all the things the system provides. And I can hear it right now, the i do not want political or social messaging in my movies crowd. They're groaning, and look, I get it. There seems to be a trend where... Social or political themes are no longer subtext, and frankly come off more as propaganda first, characters, and stories second. So, believe me, I get it. But frankly, those movies never come off as good films as a result. They sort of die by the weight of their own, their own goals. I always like to refer to Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead whenever this topic comes up. In both of those films, Romero's social commentary plays as subtext. Yes, it's there. But the story and characters are in the foreground while you're watching the movie they are the immediacy of the film and the rest of the stuff you can kind of mull over and talk about afterwards with your friends or whatever when we get to day of the dead however romero gets a little more heavy-handed with his commentary about the industrial military complex But it's rescued from getting out of hand and going too far astray uh, with some fantastic performances across the board, especially uh, the late Joe Pilato, who is absolutely terrifying in this film. So it's worth noting, though, that that was not the case with the original Day of the Dead script, which was far superior. And I encourage you to seek it out. I don't think George Amaro gets enough credit for his actual screenwriting talent, like his actual prose on the page. He was a fantastic screenwriter very visual but also um just very just a fantastic style that just made his scripts even though you know they seem they they look a little bloaty, but they read very quickly just a fantastic screenwriter so if you ever get a chance to um find that day of the dead script the original script um you'll notice the original script because it has a character in it named uh, Sarsaparilla, i believe his name is um it's it's a great script top top to bottom page one to the end fantastic script seek it out um, and then we, by the way, when you get to land of the dead, that is just Romero unleashed, <laughs> which is why I suspect it wasn't as well received by fans. It's definitely different in tone than the first two films and even the third. And the commentary is so heavy handed. It actually gets in the way of the story and the characters. It's still a good film, but it, it gets in its own way, in my opinion. And you can definitely see the shift from the first two to the third, to that, to that fourth film. But for Texas Chainsaw, This theme of the lower-income, blue-collar worker getting thrown under the bus of progress is entirely in line with the original film. When Sally Hardesty and her friends pick up the Hitchhiker in the 1974 film and they pass by the slaughterhouse, the Hitchhiker talks about how his family worked there for generations and were eventually put out of work by automation. The Sledgehammer slaughter team were replaced with the more efficient bolt air guns. And while Hooper doesn't spend a lot of time on this, it's something which plays into the overall themes of the film. It sets the foundation for who these people are. Society fed off of them and their years of hard labor, then they were tossed aside when they were no longer needed and forgotten, and now they are going to feed off of society. Literally. Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, which, yes, this new film, you know, technically it no longer exists, but it also follows up on this theme. In Hooper's sequel, The Cook, played by the absolutely fantastic Jim Sidell, does exactly what I just talked about a moment ago. He stops trying to live outside and fight the system and actually buys in and feeds off of it from inside. He starts a food truck business and is hugely successful. I mean, he is making bank and doesn't want anything to get in the way of his profit machine. It's also a commentary on how we blindly trust the companies that provide our food. Okay, Larry Cohen also touched on this with his 1985 film, The Stuff. And a full transparency processed food is one of my big bugaboos right now because a lot of the chronic illness we're suffering as Americans is because of processed food. There's a reason a lot of our processed food is illegal in many. Many European countries, but I, I, I don't want either grass. I don't want to go too far afield in that. So from Texas Chainsaw one and two and now 2022 progress devouring the lower income working class is a common theme because someone always gets thrown under the wheels of progress. And majority of the auto workers have been replaced by robots. You pretty much need a degree in robotics and computer tech to work in that industry. Now, Amazon employees They're unionizing. Okay, good for them. But approximately 30% of Amazon's warehouse workforce is already robots. Well, the goal is to increase that to nearly 85% in five years or less. Starbucks employees are trying to organize. Right now, at this very moment, there is a Japanese candy store in downtown Portland, one of those places that sells dagashi and a bunch of the Hello Kitty stuff, um, where a robot will make you an espresso. No human assistance needed. How long before that becomes more cost effective than to roll it out everywhere? Five years? Ten? You think self driving cars are pretty cool? Yeah, they are. They could prevent the instances of drunk driving. They could help seniors who can no longer drive get to the store, get to their doctor appointments. But what do you think it will really be used for, that technology? Yeah. Uber and Lyft are already working on plans to roll out a fleet of self-driving electric cars. Federal Express is already developing a self-driving electric truck, which will transport packages interstate, city to city, warehouse to warehouse. I know this because I'm an investor. This will allow them to cut jobs and remain competitive with UPS. And it won't be long before all interstate trucking is automated. And all these de-aging computer effects in films has shown us that actors can easily be replaced. Let's be very clear. There is very little in the job market that AI and computers or robots will not be able to do. If you think your job is safe, you are mistaken. The more technology advances, the faster it advances. And the Texas Chainsaw Massacre films touch on that. The 1974 film talks about automation replacing the worker and leaving them behind. The 2022 film talks about how lower social classes are crushed under the wheels of economic progress, regardless of where that is. And that moment where Melody realizes they are benefiting from the broken dreams of the people who lived in this town is an incredibly well-written and well-acted scene. I mean, the only character with any sense of decency from the get-go is the guy they look down upon at first glance, you know, the gun-toting local, uh, who turns out to be the contractor they hired unseen the uh, and, and another underused character, actually, because it felt like he and Lila were developing a friendship, maybe like a brother-sister dynamic, that never really gets to flourish in uh, here. I and mean, in fact, the entire film feels a little rushed. The running time is very short, which is unfortunate because it feels like they left a lot of character and relationship real estate unexplored. I also like the fact that the themes that I'm talking about are not a hard sell here. They're there, but like Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead, they're not being thrown in your face, which is why I really liked how it was handled. The immediacy is the characters and the story, and then there is the subtext as far as you know the world that they're living in, um, and the things that they're doing, and that there are you know definitely some um, themes about you know um, what what's how much of that is right, right. You know, that they're doing things that they would normally be against and how you become that. And again, it's definitely subtext here. Um, I was the other thing I was impressed by was having the main character, Lila, being the survivor of a school shooting. That was kind of a real holy shit moment for me because it was something I haven't seen before. um, And I had mixed feelings about it. I I thought I felt it was a little manipulative at first, but ultimately it feels like it was a pretty gutsy move. Because school shootings are something we don't talk about until one happens. And when it does, people immediately retreat to their corners and use the same talking points over and over and over again, resolving nothing. So here it struck me that, wow, these instances are commonplace enough to where it makes sense that a character who has survived one would eventually show up as a main character in the film. So I appreciated the courage to do something we hadn't seen before with that but I don't think it's maximized in the way I assume they intended. I think it's clear this traumatic event in her youth was meant to create a bond between Lila and Sally Hardesty, who saw her friends slaughtered by Leatherface in the original, just like Lila saw her friends slaughtered in the school shooting. But they don't have enough screen time together for that to completely work. I mean, compared to something like Aliens, where Newt is a survivor, having gone through the same thing Ripley did. So when they meet, they have that bond, that immediate bond. Nancy and Kristen and Nightmare and Elm Street, three dream warriors, have that bond, both coming from, from single mothers of questionable character as well, by the way. So those are fine examples of where that mutual traumatic experience or similar experiences work on the character relationship level. But here again, Lila and Sally don't spend enough time together for, and to maximize that dynamic. So it really doesn't work beyond, wow, you really went there uh, by making her you know, the survivor of a school shooting. So ultimately feels like a wasted opportunity, just like the Lila and um, uh, local Carpenter Richter um, situation. Neither of those are really maximized for their full potential. And again, I think it's because of the running time. The Bus Massacre is absolutely great. It is so over the top that it works on that level of stradding comic book absurdity and horror. And I mean, I... I really enjoyed seeing all those hipsters just get fucking wrecked. (laughs) I did. I couldn't stop laughing. Um, And the color palette in that sequence is very Suspiria. It's pretty wild. And ultimately, I mean, it's that entire sequence is great. Top to bottom. Um, It really, it pays off. So look, we live in an era where proven IPs, intellectual property studios already own, are going to be reheated like that leftovers until there isn't anything left but the bones and the marrow, and even then, they'll boil the bones and make bone broth. This will not be the last time the Texas Chainsaw franchise, which, let's admit it, has been an absolute mess ever since the 2003 remake, will be rebooted. It'll happen again. And in the era of Halloween 2018-type reboot cools, where the sequels are jettisoned to create a new timeline, I think Texas Chainsaw 2022 is pretty successful in building on the themes of the original film, just like I've talked about here, which is sometimes through no intention of your own, you can awaken a slumbering beast. And when the bill comes due, you got to pay.